And with the first overall selection in the 2023 NHL Draft, the Chicago Blackhawks are very proud to select from the Regina Pats, the Western Hockey League, Connor Bedard. As if we were surprised by that. But the Connor Bedard era starts off in Chicago. And imagine being Connor Bedard waking up almost every day. I would say not even almost every day for like the last three years going, I know that in the 2023 draft, I'm going first overall. Imagine having that kind of power. That's like Connor McDavid every morning waking up and going, yeah, I could probably score tonight. That is a, that is a superpower. And we know that those don't actually exist, but in the case of sport, that is the superpower. And in Connor Bedard's case, that is knowing how great you are. Is there a lot of work for him to become a star in the game? Sure. He's got to prove it at the NHL level, but I think we're going to be just fine knowing that. Um, but aside from the hockey thing with Connor Bedard, the, the hockey thing, that thing he's really good at, aside from the on ice stuff, Yesterday, I, I loved when he was sitting down with <clears throat> with David Amber and Sam Cosentino and Chuck Fletcher, and he talked about his grandfather. Now, for those that don't know, his grandfather passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but he wanted to make sure he gave a shout-out to his grandfather and carried around a poker chip with his picture on it. Um, as someone who was close with his own grandfather and and much like many others out there, I can appreciate carrying around a piece of him with you wherever you go. Uh, I do that myself. Uh, but that was a really kind of touching moment for me and and looking at Connor Bedard, the person. Because the on-ice stuff is is what's going to make him money. But the off-ice stuff where he, you know, shows the human side, which he did last night, I thought that was a really, really cool moment. Now, the rest of the draft, there were a lot of rumblings at number two that Pat Verbeek could do something that maybe a lot of people didn't expect. I don't want to say it was off the board because Leo Carlson is a very, very good player in his own right. There's no question about that. But he surprised and he went with with the big Swedish forward, Leo Carlson. And by all accounts, there was a gasp at the draft last night when it was Leo Carlson and not Adam Fantilli. Now, Columbus is absolutely thrilled. I mean, they were going to be thrilled with whoever it was that they got, whether it was Carlson or whether it was Fantilli. But I have this suspicion that they didn't believe that Adam Fantilli was going to be available to them at pick number three. So obviously incredibly happy with him. And, you know, he's the pride of Nobleton, Ontario, so we can't forget that. Pushed me down the list a little bit further yesterday after going third overall. I think I I think I put myself at 4,017th on the list after he got drafted third overall yesterday. I, he was going to knock me down a peg or two anyway, so it doesn't, didn't really matter. Um, and speaking of Adam Fantilli, how about that vest yesterday? Talk about the off-ice stuff and and knowing where you came from. And his vest, for those that didn't see it, had the names of all the people that helped him along the way. Names of families, names of coaches, names of of friends and relatives and, and whatever. That, to me, is a really, really cool moment last night. That is one that you look back on 
and say, yeah, that kind of set the standard. And that and that's something, you know, that he lives up to. I don't know him personally, don't know his family, but based on what I saw yesterday and based on how he carries himself in interviews, uh, he's a really impressive individual. And it has nothing to do with where he's from. That's just my bias. There were some surprises for sure in the first round, Arizona to many. Uh, they go with two Russians, which, I mean, is almost unheard of in a first round now, especially with the the geopolitical climate that we currently live in. Um, Dmitry Shemeshev and Dan, Daniel Boot. Uh, and But Sam Cosentino nailed it. Like, everybody wants to talk about these being surprises, but Arizona couldn't trade down. They have, like, a million draft picks. They couldn't trade down. So if you believe in the player... You go out and get your guy. So I don't fault the Arizona Coyotes by any stretch of the imagination. That's their, that's their, how they operate. That They have a, a billion picks. So we're not going to acquire any more. We only have 50 contracts. So this is how we're going to do it. We believe in the upside of these two guys. So we're going to, we're going to keep them. We're going to draft those players in those slots that we have. And we're not trading down. All of that. And then Matvey Mitchkov goes number seven to Philadelphia, which we all predicted all along, right? No. There's talks about a secret meeting. This feels like the Cold War all over again. I mean, not that I was around for it, but that's what it kind of feels like. Secret meetings. They close down the arena. Oh, no, it's just a coincidence. Nothing in this world is a coincidence anymore, especially when you're trying to hide the fact that you wanted to go out and draft Matvey Mitchkov. Having said all that, Washington, who everybody thought that's where he was going to end up, pretty happy with who they took at number eight in Ryan Leonard. The guy he said he likes to pull from his game the most was Tom Wilson. Have fun. That'll be that'll be a fun guy to play against. The skill to go along with the nastiness. And, and maybe the line of the night came from Kevin Dayoff in his interview with Elliot Friedman after they made their first round selection. Here he is. Kevin, I've heard a lot of really good things about this guy. Told Carol he can grow a beard at age seven. Was that why you took him? What, what did you like? Well, he's a hard-nosed player and someone that has you know, tremendous skill, but we just love the way he plays. And if you watch the playoffs, that's the type of uh, players that, that help you win championships. All right, ask Craig Conroy the same question. There's been a lot of talk around Winnipeg. Do you have anything hot cooking right now? We just picked Colby Barlow. That's real hot. Thanks very much, Kevin. Thank you. That was great. The only thing I could think of was the line from Zoolander with Will Ferrell. That Hansel's so hot right now. You know what's hot? Jeff Merrick show right now. Matt Marchese in for Jeff. Shayna Goldman on the other side. Let's get the show started. This is the Jeff Merrick show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast joining me on the line right now. Shana, um, how good was that line by Kevin Dayoff last night? Yeah, it, it was great. I, it, it added something exciting to what was otherwise a very bland draft, right? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Like, we all we heard yesterday was about how so many picks were going to move and guys were going to get traded. And then what we have at the end of the day is, yeah, there were some surprises, but for the first time since 2007, that no pick has moved. Now, I understand that this is a deep draft. I understand that, you know, people were very comfortable with their boards, but you had to have been just as surprised as I was with all the chatter going in that there wasn't at least one pick or player moved. 
Yeah, I'm a little surprised. And the more I thought about it, the more I, it does make sense when you consider how many players that are, you know, high on the trade boards are ones that are, you know, free agents next year. So immediately when I saw no trades happen, I was thinking maybe more teams want to keep that trend up of the sign-in trade. So they have to wait till at least July 1st because those players, you know, who are expiring in 2024 can't be expended, you know, extended until July 1st. That takes care of a lot of players on the trade board, but there are still some surprises. How many of us thought that we'd see, you know, Alex Dabrinkat traded yesterday or something big to the fact that it ended off at that Riley Smith trade and there were hours in between that happening and the draft starting I'm totally shocked. Yeah, me too. And and I mean, there's been a couple moves today and we can get to those. But I mean, when when you look at last night and, and no trades aside, did you have a, a favorite moment from last night? Because I mean, there were there were a bunch, you know, some guys getting drafted maybe where they didn't think they were. Um, there was always the Carey Price situation where he forgot his forgot David Reinbacher's name. Uh, Pekka Rene did the same thing outside when he was announcing the Preds pick. Uh, but was there something that stood out to you that was kind of your favorite moment? I, I feel for those, you know, mess-ups with the names. Uh, that's, that's a tough one for the people who made the mistake. And it's a tough one for the player, too, that their moment gets weighed down a little bit. But for me, the highlight had to be Mishkoff going to the Flyers because there were so many questions about where he was going to go, what his situation was, and, you know, there's so much complications to it. But at the end of the day, this is a player that has potentially elite skill, and you have to swing for upside. And when the Canadians didn't make the pick, I was so intrigued to see what the Flyers were going to do because of all organizations, I think they're one of the most interesting in the league right now, which is kind of wild when you think about the year they just had. But the creativity that Danny Breer has and the commitment to the long haul and to finding the most skilled options that they can and putting together the best team that they can, it seems like they're going to be the team on the rise to watch. You know, we see right now we're all watching, you know, Buffalo and Detroit. And in a couple of years, it feels like the Flyers are going to be that team on the rise. And they picked a player who if all goes well and all goes right. And, it, you know, I don't think the Flyers would have made the choice without that measured knowingness of, you know, it happening. It just feels like they really solidified a key part of their future and they just swung for upside, which is what you should be doing in the draft. Yeah. And the thing that kind of stood out to me was like, I really, I know there was a lot of talk about Washington and then some people, and then people were coming around to the idea of Philly. I really thought Arizona should have made that pick because at the end of the day, you know, hopefully they're in a new locale in the next couple of years, whether it's still in Arizona, which I can't see happening, but when you get there, if you have Clayton Keller and you have Logan Cooley and you have Matt Vay-Mitchkov, I mean, that's a pretty formidable uh, top three that you have there in terms of forwards. And he fit the bill because they're not going to be ready for, you know, two or three years. I, I, I'm just, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the little nuances of the draft, but that was one that really surprised me that they wouldn't take a swing at number six there and then maybe take a safer guy at number 12. Yeah, yeah, totally. I can see that. Honestly, my feeling with the Coyotes, and it's true, last year, too, when we considered, like, the situation of Shane Wright probably not wanting to go there and them having to, like, skip him in the order, it's true this year as well. Just trade down. I know we don't see it in the NHL enough, and I, you know, I want to see it. I want to know what the value of a draft pick is in the in the NHL. Like, we see it in the NFL that a top-ten pick can get moved all the time. We kind of have an idea what it might cost to go from – five down to two. 
we have no idea in the NHL because we don't see it enough. Occasionally we see someone trade into the top 10 and we see, you know, NHL players going one way or the other. And I don't think the Coyotes should have traded out of the draft because there's legitimately no reason to do that. They don't need players right now. It seems they're very committed to being bad for the next couple of years. But move down to seven or eight and see what you could get, you know, if you can't go for the player like Mitch Cobb, and I can see why they, they want more of a win, right? They want something that they know is going to work out in three years. So if they decide to turn it around and actually be good, they have a shot at doing it. So I understand not taking this pick straight down then see what you can do, because maybe you could have added two picks in the prospect uh, in the process or a prospect who would be cheap and inexpensive and fit their needs, with no salary plus a pick. My only, my only thing with that, Sam Cosentino brought it up on the Sportsnet broadcast last night, was they just they have so many picks and they don't have enough contracts. So at that point, it was just like, we're just going to take the guy that we think should go, um, whether we get him at six or we were to get him at 10 or whatever. So that was, I think, the only thing that kind of stood out. Um, looking at, let, let's now focus on kind of what's gone on today. There was a move, uh, Kyler Yamamoto and Clem Costin, head to Detroit for future considerations. You know, those those wonderful future considerations. I get why Edmonton did it. Um, but of those two guys, like Yamamoto has been really, really a couple of down years where, you know, the offense has dried up and, and not really been a guy that you can count on for that offense. But Clem Costin is the interesting one here for me because I really like the player. He's a big body. He's certainly not afraid. He's got a big shot. Um of those two guys, I would assume that Costin is the one that maybe you're most interested in heading to Detroit. Yeah, I definitely am interested because I feel like he brings a different skill set than what they have on this roster right now. There's some finishing talent that I think that they could really use. It's a team that was, you know, bottom five in at five on five in shot generation, scoring chance generation, and goal scoring this past year, and their power play was a mess. So if you can find anyone with finishing talent, that's a big deal. Um, so. I think that that size and grit that he brings is something to bet on. And with Yamamoto, too, I'm intrigued by it because if he can stay healthy, you add another good playmaker. These are the risks you can take if you have cap space like Detroit has. you know. And the fact that the only thing they're giving up is roster space and cap space, both of which they have, it makes it a no-brainer. They're two basic reclamation projects. So why not? Yeah, they're the cost of one. I, I agree. Like both of them have the chance to have some pretty good upside for a Detroit team that really kind of tailed off at the end of last season. So definitely going to be interesting. Uh, Shayna Goldman from the athletic and the too many men podcast joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick show. Um, yesterday, Vegas makes the deal. They flip Riley Smith to Pittsburgh for a third round pick. And then they lock up Ivan Barbashev, five years times five. He was arguably the best trade deadline acquisition and, and really was a nice fit on that top line with Jonathan Marchessault and um, and Jack Eichel. When you look at the player and you look at, at how he performed with Vegas, you know, we know about the physicality. We know about um, him being a pretty defensively responsible guy. But is this a move where you could see the offense really flourish with a full season with both of those players? Yeah, for sure. I think that I think that this trade honestly does make sense for both sides, especially when you look at, you know, the cap situation in Vegas. You're getting Ivan Barbashev at the same price as Riley Smith, and he's five years younger on a five year deal. Like it all clicks for Vegas in that way. There's a harsh yes, absolutely. But like this is the business and they don't care about anyone's feelings, any loyalty, and we know that. So I think Vegas having Barbashev it's going to allow them to maintain that forward pair 
setup that they had throughout their top nine. And it was really interesting how you had Carlson and Smith. That was your pair. Stevenson and Stone, that was your pair. And then March, so Eichel. So now technically you could just have a top line and figure out another pairing to go with, you know, uh, Will Carlson and, and figure it out that way. But maybe Barbashev slots along and they keep their top nine just as deep as it was before. It's a great weapon to have for Vegas. And for Pittsburgh, I, I still think that Smith makes all the sense in the world for them. You know, the skills that he brings, the all-around offensive ability. He's just a great utility player, and he's a really good penalty killer, so why not? Where do you think that Smith fits there? Like, there's there's talk. I think it was – I think Mike Sullivan said uh, first inclination was to play him with Malkin, but – for some reason, I don't know what it is. I feel like Riley Smith would be a really good fit alongside Sidney Crosby and Jake Gensel. No, I, I absolutely agree. Like, I think he could fit with Malkin and kind of make up from some of the defense there and, you know, do a little bit of everything. But it feels like, and maybe they feel like Crosby's that ultimate utility player on the top line because it, it really, what is he bad at? You can't find anything. He's good defensively. He's good offensively. He can transition the puck. He can shoot the puck any which way. He can make plays better than anybody. So maybe this will give their top six more versatility, which they feel they're missing. But it does feel like the two of them can really keep pace with each other and do all the dirty work and do everything that needs to be done. So Jake Gensel can just be like the goal scorer or he can be playmaking as well because, you know, he has that skill set in him too. And then you have Russ to play with Malkin, and the two of them make, I think, a really good pairing, too. Like, you just give yourself more options, and I think that's the whole key of it because you have someone that legitimately can fit anywhere in the top nine that you need him to. And if you have versatility and you have options, you're in a really good position to succeed because if a combination doesn't work, you try out another one. It's not like you're, you know, your roster is limiting what you can do. No, and, and that, well, that's certainly the case. They, they they certainly have some things that they have to figure out in Pittsburgh. Um, Staying in the division, yesterday, um, I mean, Tom Fitzgerald has been insanely busy. Like, he is just, it feels like every time you turn, Tom Fitzgerald is doing something. Uh, yesterday was locking up Timo Meyer to a, a deal eight times 8.8. I was a little surprised it came in over the Jack Hughes number, but the Jack Hughes number is looking like a steal anyway. Um, what was What was your first blush about the Meyer deal. Did you like the value and, and why is he such a good fit in New Jersey with that, with that top six forward group? Yeah, I agree with you because I did kind of think that Jack Hughes was going to be like that forward cap. And maybe he's just the, you know, that internal cap of nobody can go past this number, but maybe that's just the case with players who were drafted and developed by the devils versus someone they brought in, but he's a great fit for the team because they need, they need shot makers, they need volume shooters, and they need – and he can do that. And he adds more top nine, and it just feels like they keep, you know, pushing it there to add as much talent as they can. And the contract itself, from a devil's perspective, if I'm the team, I love it because I think that they got him for maybe $2 million on average a year less than what he's worth. From the player's perspective and from what I want to see with the landscape of the NHL – I just want superstar players to make what they're worth. I want to see teams, you know, construct their rosters around those high-paid players because it's so ridiculous that a team will spend that extra million dollars or $2 million on a third or fourth liner, but the top liners are the ones who always get those cuts. So I'm hoping that trend starts to change. I feel like Austin Matthews is the, is the player who maybe can start it, but I know we're all going to hear, you know, the selfishness because nobody else does it, even though they should be. 
Yeah, the salary cap has really kind of put a hindrance on all of that. Like, I, I get it. I am ag- I agree with you. They should make as much money as humanly possible while they're playing the game because for a lot of guys, the, the career is, you know, not super long and a, lots of things can happen. So I'm totally with you on that one. I did want to focus a little bit on Tom Fitzgerald a little bit because, you know, I, I mentioned this yesterday and he said it on this show. Tom Fitzgerald loves fantasy football and he talked about how much he learned from playing fantasy football becoming, you know, and then becoming a, an NHL GM. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, yes, but he's really operating at a level that, I mean, we haven't really seen a lot of. He acquires really, he's not afraid to take swings. Uh, We saw him bring in Tyler Toffoli, which is a really, really smart deal. He drafts well. The organization is just so well-built now after years of like, well, we're not quite sure what the direction is here. He's done a good job of steering the ship. Why do we not talk about Tom Fitzgerald as one of the best general managers in the NHL? Probably because the Devils have won the offseason so many times in in frequent, you know, in in the last couple of years, we hear that so frequently, and then they did nothing in the regular season to show for it. And sometimes it was, you know, you look back at 21-22, their goaltending broke. They had a good team in front of the net, but you couldn't tell because the goaltending was so disastrous, and that's all that we could focus on. But until we saw his work come to fruition, it feels like we couldn't talk about it enough. And then it's also the market, honestly. You know, people don't want to talk about the Devils. They want to talk about the big-name teams. But it's hot Tom summer. Like, just (laughs) let Fitzgerald cook. Watch what he's going to do because he's doing a fantastic job. And a lot of it's because I would say his commitment to listening to everything, right? Like, this is a general manager who has invested in his front office to get different perspectives. And it seems like he really does a good job of taking that information in and trying to make the best decision possible for the Devils. That will bring in the most skill. What is the best way to bring in a skilled roster? You don't have a problem where you need, you know, like so many teams are here right now, right with the Maple Leafs. We need to be harder to play against. We need this. We need that. The Devils want to be harder to play against, but they understand just having the most skilled roster and a little bit more versatility within their forward group without it just being grit is what will get you there. So here's a team made up of a ton of playmakers. Let's bring in finishing talent. Here's a team with amazing passers. Let's bring in one of the best shot creators in the league who, you know, is in his prime and let's maximize contracts while these players are in their prime to extend our window. It's innovative. It's current. It's, it's modern. It's what, So many general managers need to strive to do. It shows the importance of an analytics department. And yes, I mean, completely biased with that. But, you know, you can see the work that's going in there and you can see the results in that team last year. And even if you tried to dig a little deeper below the goaltending the year before. So it just feels like he's a coach that understands how to maximize this group and how to pay your stars and structure the cap around them and how to make you know, who didn't, how to understand which players are replaceable. He's just doing a great job with that. Not to spend too much more time on the Devils, but I'm glad that you mentioned the goaltending thing there. So Mackenzie Blackwood heads to San Jose for nothing, but they weren't going to qualify him anyway. So to get an asset is, is a great bit of business. Are you comfortable with the goaltending situation? Like, is it good enough with the defensive group that they have in front? Luke Hughes is going to be playing next year. They already have Dougie Hamilton. Kevin Ball really improved. Like, there's, it's a good... It's a good group. John Marino was really good. Uh, Siegenthaler, another guy. Like there, it's a very formidable defensive unit. Is the goaltending or is the defense good enough to mask any goaltending issues you think they might have, or are you just comfortable with Akira Schmid and and Vitek Vanacek going forward? Um, I think a little bit of both. So the defensive group, you're taking a little bit more risk on because you don't have someone like Severson as your third pair defenseman when he's a top four guy anywhere else, right? 
you're taking a risk with the kids, which is the right thing to do. And it's the perfect balance that they need of those entry-level deals to work out with the big contracts. But it could weigh on the goaltending a little bit more. But it does feel like they're committed to playing that fast-paced puck possession style that that keeps them free and clear of needing their goaltenders to be perfect. And all they need, you know, all everyone screamed in 21-22 is that they just need average goaltending. They got that last year. It was slightly above average. I think that they can feel some security going into the season with these two goaltenders. I think the thing was we saw it's possible Vanishex was bad in the playoffs, right? Like, we don't know. From what we've seen of his postseason, you know, with the Capitals and with the Devils, they've both been outright bad. But it's entirely possible, too, that this past year the issue was he has never played a workload like that, and he wasn't he wasn't ready for it. And then once it became too much, it weighed down his game, and Schmidt did step up. Uh, could they rotate as a 1A, 1B with those two? Absolutely. Do I think they're going to? No. I think that they're going to do something else. I don't know if the Helen Bucks of the world are the answer here because I think elite golden, I think elite goaltending is still important. I know everyone wants to take the lessons from the Vegas Golden Knights that it's not. I do think it is. But I think it is for certain rosters that aren't constructed the way the Devils are that I don't think they need to invest $9 million in a 30-year-old goaltender at this point. Someone like a Logan Thompson is what makes sense to me as a better 1A, 1B for Vanacek, and you can let Schmidt develop a little bit more and they'll let him step up in a year or two. Very interesting. I, I'm I'm with you on the goaltending. Like I, there there are some questions still for me, but if they could add somebody to really kind of solidify that pair, I think that New Jersey. Well, I mean, I think they're going to win the division hands down anyway. But they're going to be super yeah. fun to watch. Um, okay, so we've seen a lot of movement in a little under a week. Has there been a team that's impressed you the most with what they've been able to do? Whether it's moving out salary or or bringing in players like you know. Colorado comes to mind with what they've done, but is there a team that kind of stands out to you that you look at and go, you know, I'm really impressed with the work that they've done here. Well, the Devils are the number one for me right now. They're okay, the winners who's your right number now. two? <laughs> Colorado. Absolutely Colorado. Um, you know, I liked that Colorado last summer didn't go for a big two seat. I was really intrigued to see if they could balance out not having a true two seat with the elite wingers that they had, Gabriel Landeskog, Valen Shushkin, Arturi Lekkinen, Miko Rantanen is your top four wingers. So Nathan McKinnon gets one, can drive the line, right? And the other center gets two wingers. That, I think, was this perfect setup. And we've seen teams in the past get away with not having a true one C, a true two C even, or any weakness down the middle. You look at the Vegas Golden Knights, and when you have someone like Mark Stone there, you do, it balances out your center depth. So I was intrigued, and it just felt like the injuries and everything crushed them and stopped them from doing that. Considering now the question marks that they have on the wing with Landerskog and even Natushkin to a point, like I think the right move was getting two centers to play down the middle. Newhook didn't advance the way that they hoped. They flipped and got two picks, and they get a player who I think is a little bit better and a little more established than Ross Colton, and I think he's a really good fit. And Johansson at half of his cap is a good bet to make because even if they knock him down to the three C, which very well may happen, I think Ross Colton will jump over him on the depth chart. You know, it's not that bad to have that kind of money invested. They still have some work to do. They don't have a ton of forward signed and not a lot of cap space to do it, but that's a really smart front office that got off to, I think a really strong start to this off season. So now that, you know, the first round is done, we've got the second round and third round and everything else going on today. And it doesn't have to be draft eligible player. It doesn't, it can be, uh, it can be someone who may be a trade candidate or a free agent, but is there a player that most intrigues you right now as we get towards, you know, what we think is going to be a busy couple of days, you know, maybe starting today and then into tomorrow before free agency kicks off. Oh, there's so many good options to go with. We've got some time. Um, there's so many. 
<laughs> I'm going to say, let's go big. Let's go with William Nylander because there's so much intrigue to the situation. If the Maple Leafs think that they're going to blow up their core, right, just to blow it off, blow it up and change it, it's the wrong decision. And kind of what we're hearing already from them of the need to get harder to play against, need more grit, things like that. You know, I think every Leafs fan should be so concerned right now hearing that. But the fact is, he's represented by the same agent as Johnny Gaudreau. The Leafs can't let him walk for nothing. They can't be in that same position. That, you know, 10-team no-trade list is going to make life a little bit harder. But then again, if they want to go with the sign-and-trade, it doesn't matter. That 10-team no-trade list, it has to be somewhere he wants to go. So that might alleviate some pressure if that's how they're holding the bar already. But he feels like the most likely trade candidate from there because he has the most cost-effective contract right now. And it feels like such a mistake if they were to move him. But, you know, we don't always see superstar players on the move. So anytime that you have that potential, it's interesting. And the way, you know, can they win the trade? Or is it going to be the Matthew Kachuk trade all over again? That it doesn't matter that you get two high-end players like Uyghur and Hubert are going the other way. You trade someone like Kachuk, you're losing the trade. Like, I, I want to see this situation play out. I want to know what happens. And I want to see what the Maple Leafs do around that because, Right now, you see them spending that extra million dollars on someone like David Camp, and you don't think much of it, right? It's a 4C. Who cares? But that money adds up. And if you do the same thing with, say, Kerfoot, and now that's $2.5, 3000000 million extra, and that's the money you come short on because Matthews makes all the money in the world and you have to still pay Nylander and then Marner in a year, it's going to hurt. So I, I just want to see it in this situation. Yeah, I wonder if he's just going to price himself out on any extension talks. I really do have a feeling that that's where we're going to end up. Uh, listen, Shana, you've been uh, very gracious with your time, as you always are. Great stuff, great insight, and uh, enjoy the next couple of days. Hopefully you get your wish and we see a lot more action. Maybe the, uh, the the hot Tom summer continues for you. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Uh, there she goes, Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast uh we're gonna hit a break when we come back former nhl gm chuck fletcher who is on sportsnet's draft coverage last night will recap what we saw in the first round and and maybe dive a little bit deeper into what kind of goes on on draft night uh, chuck fletcher is next matt marchese in for jeff merrick on the jeff merrick show uh listening on the sportsnet radio network watching on sportsnet now and sportsnet 360 Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Farfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese in for Jeff. Uh, We do have a trade to announce. Not a big one, but... Maybe one of some consequence. Um, Tampa Bay acquires a seventh round selection for the UFA rights to Corey Perry from the Chicago Blackhawks. So that's a really interesting one. Drafted Connor Bedard yesterday and now maybe trying to surround him with some veteran players. Um, someone who knows Corey Perry and was there when they drafted him joins us on the line now. Chuck Fletcher, longtime NHL GM, was part of Sportsnet's draft coverage last night. Uh, Chuck, how are you today? I'm doing well, Matt. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so the Corey Perry news comes across the wire, and you were there when when the Ducks drafted him. Are you surprised that he's still going all these years later? Well, it's incredible. I mean, the reason he fell to 28 in the draft in the first place was so there was concerns on his skating and even on his overall athleticism. And 
and uh, here he is still still playing, you know, 20 years later and, and still playing well. You know, it, his, his game's never been about speed. It's always been about intelligence and effort and compete and, and obviously high-end skill. And, um, you know, he's still, a, still a, an effective player out there. I wanted to ask you about this because this is something that I brought up on this show with Jeff and, you know, comparatively, well, you know a lot more about what goes on behind closed doors than Jeff does. But I've always had this uh, this idea that a guy like Corey Perry can last a lot longer because he's never had to rely on speed, like you said. And the guys that do rely on speed, you know, for the early parts of their career and, and into their mid-years of their career really have a hard time adjusting when the boots kind of go away. Is that is that something that you think happens a lot more often than than most? I, I think it does. And you look at a lot of the players that have lasted a long time, uh, they have a couple traits. And one is intelligence. Again, they know how to play the game. They understand what they are. They've usually had to make an adjustment and roll at some point and accept a lesser role. Sometimes that's difficult. And you probably have to get a little bit lucky in, uh, with respect to, 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 you know, not having a lot of injuries and having good health. But, you know, Corey Perry uh, never had the speed. Even in junior in London, he didn't skate by guys. Uh, he skated around them. He, he went to places before the puck got there. He, he competed at the net. I mean, he just had hockey sense off the charts. He made plays all night long. But obviously a guy that knows how to play the game. And, and so when the legs slow down a little bit, uh, you know, that's never really an issue because he knows how to play and where to go. But, uh, but yeah, you do see that. And, and, uh, but I think there's also an element of good fortune there too, about staying healthy. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So to the draft last night and, uh, you know, you've been a part of many drafts as a front office member and, and last night you got to see it as a spectator. Uh, was there anything that kind of stood out to you like a favorite moment or, or a big surprise that you really, really weren't expecting? Well, a couple of them, and we touched on them last night. Uh, you know, one, uh, let's be honest, this will be the Connor Bedard draft 15, 20 years from now. I, you know, you always want to be a little bit careful hyping up young players, but uh, we've been anticipating this moment for, for a while with Connor going first and going to a franchise like Chicago, uh, you know, original six franchise that have struggled a little bit the last couple of years, a big market, a big platform for him in the United States and for the NHL. Uh, that That is a big, big moment. But, you know, as a general manager, I was a little bit surprised about the lack of trades. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to analyze. I actually spoke to Elliot Friedman a little bit about it, Jeff a little bit about it, you know, what their thoughts were. And, and, and uh, you know, it maybe speaks to the strength of the first round of the draft where teams didn't feel compelled to, to give up assets to move up. Everybody was comfortable staying where they were, drafting who they wanted to draft. And and on the, on the flip side, you know, on the player front, uh, there's just not a lot of value in players right now. There's so many players in the market. You're seeing all these trades where teams are acquiring pretty good players for, for not much. So why give up a first round pick for a player in this type of market? And, uh, you know, really with the exception of Kevin Sheveldayoff on the Dubois trade, you haven't seen a lot of trades where you, you see a lot of value going back and there's been a lot of good players moved for not much. So, but it, it was a little bit different. Um, it, you know, the, the draft was very methodical and there weren't a lot of surprises and spice and, and uh, a lot of great players being picked. Uh, good young players, I think, that, that teams will be happy with. But without the trades, it was certainly a different feel last night. Yeah, it was. Uh, I wanted to focus on David Reinbacher for a second here because this was a player that was not ranked by Central Scouting in September and absolutely rocketed 
up the rankings. Have you ever seen a player that has had that kind of impact in such a short time? Like there are guys that, you know, maybe they get on the, on the central scouting list in, you know, maybe December and they, you know, become a second round pick or, or whatever. But for someone to go from unranked to drafted fifth overall is not something that happens very often. Can you speak to why he had such a, a big rise from September until now? It's a great question. I, I think part of it is, you know, he's an Austrian kid that this year obviously played in the Swiss League. And, but prior to this this year, my guess is, you know, you're probably not having a lot of your top people uh, with a very good book on him and, and a little bit more obscure, a little bit uh, longer path to get to where he needed to get to. But once he arrived in the Swiss League and you see a kid like that playing in the top four initially and eventually moving up to top two in a, in a good pro league at, at 18 and playing in a lot of different situations. Then he shows up at the world, uh, world juniors on a very bad team, mind you, but, but battled and, and I think showed some things. And from that point on, he just took off. And, uh, but I, I think once everybody saw the, 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 how well he played in a strong men's league, uh, he rose, but I'm just not sure people knew him well enough. There just wasn't, you're not following a kid like he wasn't a major junior where you saw him all the time as an underage and had, had a good book on him. But uh, I haven't seen many players like that. You know, the last couple of years, guys like Sider and even Juracek have really surged the second half, but they were known, but they were known much more than, uh, than Reinbacher. So it, it's a great story. And, um, but it, it speaks to the player, how well he played and also the scarcity of right shot defensemen, those big guys that can move and uh, we find a way to like them. And if they're good, they climb high. When, when you see a rise like that, I guess you could kind of look at it one of two ways. One, he came out of nowhere, like, and then, you know, he just has this, you know, maybe some guys have a growth spurt or, or they, you know, physically they become stronger. When a guy rises like that, do you have some concerns about it? Because maybe he was a bit of an unknown. Or do you look at it and go and say, this? if this was the trajectory in six months, what are we going to see in, you know, three years? Like, is that something that crosses your mind? Well, I think you trust what you see. I mean, you, you dig into it. You ask questions, and you're skeptical at first. You know, an Austrian kid coming out of nowhere and playing in the Swiss League. But then you, as you see him continue to, to handle all the challenges he's faced from the World Juniors and World Championships and, and everything, and you can continue to see him play well against older players and more experienced players, you know, you got to trust what you see. And, and, uh, and exactly, that's the projection you have. If we can get our hands on this player with our development people and afford him, uh, you know, some development and training that maybe he hasn't been exposed to how much further can we take him? And what are his physical attributes? How much uh, stronger can he get? Can he get a little quicker? Can he improve his shot? You know, are there things we can teach him defensively? And you see all those things and, and, uh, but he's a kid that obviously is a quick learner. And that's the one thing I don't speak to a lot of scouts. They were very impressed just his growth from the beginning of the year in the Swiss league. And again, a very good league. Instead of losing confidence, he gained confidence uh, despite playing against older players. And, and again, a lot of good hockey players in that league. Chuck Fletcher, a longtime NHL GM, joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick Show. So three Russians go in the top 12. Uh, not something we see, or at least we have seen a lot lately. Um, there has been a hesitancy to take Russian players. And with three in the first 12 picks, can you speak to what the process is like when you draft a Russian player and has it gotten tougher more recently that teams have really kind of shied away from it? 
Well, it's completely changed the last couple of years. I mean, it used to be, go back 20, 25 years, we were drafting them left and right, and then the KHL grew in power, and we're starting to retain a lot of their players. And So you would only draft really the top guys. You wouldn't draft as many in the later rounds because those players would not maybe want to come over and have to start in the American League. And then we swung back. We were drafting more. And, and, and now, with, of course, with all the geopolitical issues with the war in Ukraine and a lot of the sanctions, it's just very difficult to, obviously, to get into Russia, A, to, to scout them. Uh, it's difficult for those players to, to play best-on-best best competitions. They're, they're, they're not in any IIHF events. So it's much harder to scout them to get firsthand information. It's much harder to develop them once you do draft them. And it seems like the rules can change on you right now. If, if you know, who knows what, what's going to happen politically in, in, in Russia. Uh, you know, when I was in Philadelphia last year, we had a goaltender that we had signed, Ivan Fedotov, and uh, he was two weeks away from coming, coming over and, and starting a, a career in North America, and he was conscripted into the Russian Navy. You know, the rules changed, and there was no forewarning. So, you, you know, it's there's just a lot of uncertainty and. and Whatever you think you know could change, and and who knows, maybe the world gets to a better place in three or four years. But but to, to see those three kids go in the top twelve tells you how highly teams think of their ability because there there is a lot more uncertainty, and you're dealing with some things you can't control. You're picking that high. You want to make sure you're getting players that obviously are good. A, but B, that that you know you can predictably. Uh, you know, determine their their future development path and when they may arrive. And, and with the Russian players, you do not have that. Uh, well, one of those guys was Matvey Mitchkov, and he goes to the Flyers. Uh, what are your thoughts on the player? Because I remember a time where there were a lot of people, when they talk about talent, that they had him firmly at number two behind Connor Bedard. And, I mean, somebody tried to make the argument once. And I think it was only once that he may have a chance to go one, but I think we've kind of put that one to bed. Um, him falling to seven, I think was a lot of people had predicted it, but if he was Finnish or Swedish or Canadian, did you have him a lot higher based on his talent level? I think based on talent, you you probably had to have him too, um, you know, on the list, I, I would say that now the only thing, um, the only caveat there, I mean, players like Carlson and Fantilli and Smith are very talented players. Uh, I don't know that any of them can score goals like Michkov, but they're center icemen. And that is, a, as we all know, a premium position and the position teams are trying to seek. So, you know, if he had been Swedish or Finnish, would he have gone to, or would the, a couple of centermen still gone ahead of him? That, you know, that, those would have been debates that, uh, and, and may have been different answers uh, depending on which team you're speaking to. But there's no question from a talent perspective, it's a great pick at seven. And, you know, he's an extremely talented player. I, I don't think he's at Bedard's level, but you can certainly make an argument. He's, uh, I mean, he clearly is, I believe, that the, the next best, uh, you know, probably the most talented winger in the draft. And, uh, again, but there's some good centermen in this draft. So it was, this was an excellent draft. I think it's going to rank right there with the 2015 draft. It's not quite 2003, but this will be one of the better drafts that we've had so far this century. Uh, Jeff and I have talked a lot on this show about easy goals and, you know, Mitchkov is probably one of those guys that can score them. What kind of value do teams put on? And when I say easy goals, it's the guy that can go down the wing and, and fire a snapshot over the goalie shoulder. And there, yes, a lot of guys can do it, but there's only a select few that can do it consistently. Is there a higher value placed on those types of players 
in these situations because you always they're they're hard to find a lot of the time and when they do end up clicking and when you have to pay them it becomes really expensive in the draft do you try and find those guys because again when they do end up getting paid they become really expensive and it's good to have them under control at least for the first few years of their career yeah, well, that, we were trying to do that in Philly before uh, I left there. You know, everyone from Tyson Forster to picking up Tippett to Cutter Goche last year, guys that can score goals. And, you know, if you're if you're with a club that struggles to score, you really feel that. That concept of easy goals is a real one. We talk about it. And when you're on a team that has to really work incredibly hard just to score a goal, it, it makes it hard. It's, it's demoralizing for players because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to give up goals from time to time. And, when you have to work so hard to score to get back in it, um, you know, it's a draining way of playing. So you, you love that talent. You love those guys that can come down. Nothing's happening. Maybe they don't even deserve to score, but they're so talented. They just shoot it in the net anyway. And, and uh, it's huge. It's huge for your group. And, uh, and it's really hard to find. And as you said, I mean, we're seeing it right now with some players around the league and to it might be a great example of really good goal scorer probably fits the mold of what you're talking about, but all of a sudden you might be looking at eight, 9 million a year. Timo Meyer at 8.8, another good goal scorer. And it, it's, it's hard in the cap system to, you know, to, to, to pay those types of contracts. So you, you know, the more, the more skill you get, if you can find that, uh, find those guys that can come in the league and score pretty quickly and, and do it on an entry level or, or on a bridge contract, that's, that's incredible value. Uh, one more before I let you go. Uh, the U.S. National Development Program, four players drafted in the first round, um, you know, two of them very high in in Ryan Leonard and Will Smith. Um, it's a program that keeps churning out elite talent, but what what has made that program work so well in developing those elite players? Because, again, it's not slowing down. They're going to have a bunch more guys drafted today, and it's a really, really impressive program that they've put together and it's really not all that old either no well they they have two great advantages one um they obviously can recruit the whole country and and uh, there's really no jurisdiction there that prevents them from recruiting all the kids want to go because they see the success of the players before them in terms of getting drafted and getting better so they they're able to recruit and and enrollment in the u.s is just skyrocketing it's it's really growing. I guess it's slowed a little bit with COVID, but it's been coming back. But the second thing they do, you have, you know, you have one main junior league in the United States, the USHL, and then obviously you have collegiate hockey. Well, they have uh, alliances with both. They play games in the USHL, so they're they're not really in direct competition with that league. They work together, and they also play games against the NCAA. So all the uh, the top, you know, amateur. Uh, like junior college and all the top amateur hockey in the U.S., they they all support the program. They all benefit from the program, and, and so it's it's just incredible. There's just no competition. There's so it, it's seamless, and and these kids get a great level of competition. They play the best junior kids in the in the U.S. They play the college programs, and of course they go overseas and play all the top international teams. So it's um, it's a no-brainer if if you're a U.S. kid, provided you know you want to move away from home and your family's good with that. They they put you up and you go to a good high school and, and you get a level of competition that almost no other kids in the draft get unless you're playing pro hockey full time. Yeah. It's a, it's a really impressive uh, thing that they've done there. And like I said, a lot of elite talent, especially in this year's draft. Uh, listen, Chuck, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much and uh, safe travels today. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Take care.
There he goes. Chuck Fletcher, longtime NHL GM, was part of Sportsnet's first round draft coverage last night. And, you know, I love I love the talk about Mitchkov because, you know, and Shana Goldman outlined this in the in the first segment. Like you could be talking about a player that ends up and it's really hard to steal a player at seven, but could end up being a steal at number seven. There was a time where he was talked about as going number two behind Connor Bedard. And then it was it was Bedard, then Mitchkov, and then there was a big gap. Now, Adam Fantilli burst onto the scene and was excellent this year at Michigan. Leo Carlson was really good all year and then really performed well at the World Championships, which really kind of solidified his spot. We saw the improvement from Will Smith. We saw Ryan Leonard have a really good year. The Mitchkov thing is one that... Maybe teams ahead of the Philadelphia Flyers will look back on and go, wow, we really missed the boat on that. And I understand not taking the risk. I get it, which is why I, you know, for a team like Arizona with two picks in the first round, I thought taking him at six was probably a good idea. Then going with a safer pick at number 12, ended up going with two Russian players anyway. They just may have gotten the wrong one. But that was a risk that they, you know, they, they ended up taking a risk anyway, so that's what I didn't understand about it. But Matvey Mitchkov, if he ends up coming over, I think he will eventually, like in a couple of years, I think he will be over here. I don't know if it's two or three years that his contract is up. But that fits the window for a team like the Flyers. They're not winning next year. Probably not winning the year after, but that third year could be very, very interesting if he ends up making his way over because at that point, they will be putting together quite the cupboard of players. Uh, that's going to do it for us in the first hour. When we come back, Ben Goats, the Las Vegas Review Journal. The Golden Knights were busy. Barbashev in, staying. Riley Smith out. We'll talk to Ben about that and more. Matt Marchese in for Jeff Merrick on the Jeff Merrick Show. You're listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network, watching on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. Hour two of the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese in today and tomorrow. Jeff will be back on Monday. Hopefully we have plenty to talk about when Jeff comes back can't wait to see what he brought me back from nashville maybe a cowboy hat cowboy boots chicken nashville hot chicken i'd still eat it i'm not gonna lie like i'm a pig like that i'll eat that three days in jeff suitcase (laughs) that's that's disgusting all right back to the hockey talk um vegas golden knights yesterday they were busy ivan barbashev gets a new extension Riley Smith, one of the misfits, the original misfit, gone, and he heads to Pittsburgh. Uh, To talk about that and more, Ben Goats from the Las Vegas Review-Journal joins me now. Ben, have you recovered from covering a Stanley Cup run? Uh, Barely. I mean, I recovered just in time for this team to do what it always does in the offseason and make a surprise splash. So just when I thought I had a chill couple days coming up, they pulled me right back in yesterday, but... That just tends to be how these things go. 
Um, before we get into the moves, I did want to ask you about the run. And first of all, obviously it was a lot of fun covering a Stanley cup champion, but was there a key moment along the way that you look back at and go, that was, that was like a defining moment for this team on this cup run that you'll never forget. I think the biggest one for me that's going to stick out is probably just how dominant this team was in the closeout game is when they needed to turn it on when they needed to be at their best. They absolutely were. I mean, obviously you've got the incredible nine to three win in game five of the Stanley cup final. Uh, You've got a six, nothing win in game six against Dallas in the Western conference final to close it out. And even against Edmonton, which was probably like the night's closest series, the most competitive series. I mean, Marcia. So gets the natural hats trick in game six up at Edmonton to turn that into a five, two win. That was really pretty easy. So I think that's what stuck out is just how dominant this team was when it was at their best, where it really felt like when they got to their game, there just wasn't another team in the playoffs that could even touch them, which was the crazy thing to me. Yeah, it was uh, it was a very, very, very impressive run. Um, okay, so to the news of yesterday, let's start with Riley Smith because he was an original Golden Knight. He gets his Stanley Cup ring, and now he finds himself in a new locale. How difficult of a deal do you think this was for the organization? I mean, huge. He's a guy that's meant so much to the organization on and off the ice, right? Second leading goal scorer all time in franchise history behind only Jonathan Marcheseau, third in points uh, behind Marcheseau and longtime linemate William Carlson. And more than that, I mean, this is a guy that's worn an A on his sweater basically since this franchise came into existence. He was the second guy to get the Stanley Cup after Mark Stone. He's got this charity softball game that he does every year that he's now included the Raiders in since they've come to town. Uh, that's raised over $550,000 for the community since it started in 2019. I mean, he was the Knights King Clancy nominee this year for the NHL's Community Service Award. I mean, in many ways, just Riley Smith has meant everything to this organization, everything they want to represent uh, since coming over in an expansion draft deal with Florida. So we think it was really difficult that they had to make this decision, especially because he signed an extension with the team only last summer that he negotiated uh, himself. And he's probably unfortunately kind of kicking himself now that he maybe was a little bit, you know, too naive to kind of not negotiate more movement protection uh, when he talked to Kelly McCrimmon. So I think it was really difficult for the Knights, but I think they really felt like Ivan Barbashev, was a guy that they needed to bring back. I think they really wanted to extend Barbashev when they acquired him at the trade deadline. And they especially wanted to keep him around once they saw how good of a fit he was with Jack Eichel and Jonathan Marcheseau. And unfortunately, because Barbashev's price tag went up during the playoffs, I think the Knights knew that in order to keep him around, they had to make sacrifices. And, you know, they viewed Riley Smith as the guy to, to go to do that. It's funny, like you, you, you don't, you want Ivan Barbashev to have a great playoff because it's going to help you win a Stanley Cup. But at the same time, you don't want him to play too well because then his price tag goes up, and then you got to do other things. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword there. Um, just finishing up on Riley Smith, what are the Penguins getting uh, with this 32-year-old player now? Do you do you envision him as a guy who's who was capable of playing in the top six, but because of all the depth that this team had? that it just wasn't a fit, and and that's probably where he ends up with the Pittsburgh Penguins? 
Yeah, he's definitely, I think, a good top six player that can play in all situations, right? He's one of the best penalty killers in the NHL. I believe he has the is tied for the third most shorthanded goals in the league since he joined the Knights in 2017. can also play in the power play. He's got a good one-timer that he showed off a little bit last year when he scored 26 goals. So, I mean, he's just kind of an all-around forward that can really help out. He's not going to be you know, necessarily a point-per-game guy, but he's going to be a really solid uh, contributor. And, yeah, I just think, you know, the Knights, because he, you know, if you want to call it a, a third line, I think one of the Knights' strengths is that even calling their third line, uh, Michael, Mattia, William Carlson, and Riley Smith, doesn't necessarily do justice to the impact those guys had in the playoffs. But because he was sliding, I think, into a little bit of a lesser role and was, you know, getting up there in terms of being 32, they viewed him as more expendable than potentially a top-line guy who's only 27 in Ivan Barbashev. But I don't think, you know, Smith is done by any means. I expect that he's going to probably be able to help the Penguins a lot. I know Mike Sullivan said yesterday that they're already talking about putting Riley Smith on Evgeny Malkin's wing, and I think if that happens, that has the potential to be a really productive partnership. For sure. Um, okay, so Barbashev now. He, he comes in, he, he slots in on that top line with Marcia So and Eichel and, and fits in pretty seamlessly uh, when he started playing with them. You know, we talk about the physicality with him. We we know he's a, a, a very good defensively responsible player. Uh, the offense has been there in the past when he was with St. Louis. I, I believe he had a 60-point season a couple of years ago, but... You know, we saw the offense come to fruition in the playoffs at a time where goals are, generally speaking, hard to come by. Do you see the offensive numbers really kind of blowing up here for him if he plays a full year with Marcia So and Eichel? Yeah, if those guys stick together, I think they're going to be really hard to stop because of the way Barbashev compliments those guys. He's a hard worker on the forecheck that's willing to kind of do the dirty work to get the puck back to those guys. And then he's willing to reload kind of in front of the net to, you know, work for screens, deflections, tips. And having a guy willing to do that and open up space for his line mates is kind of an element the Knights were missing before, uh, before the Stanley Cup championship run, when they ran out uh, in the conference finals or the semifinals kind of a couple of years before that. It was usually because their offense dried up because they were so reliant on the rush game. And so teams got better at defending them through the neutral zone, and they were able to take a lot of the Knights' scoring away. And Barbashev coming in really helped them uh, add an element that they didn't have before where now they're able to score in zone as well as off the rush because of all the different things that he can provide. So I certainly think he's capable of keeping that offense going. I mean, he had 18 points in 22 games in the playoffs. Eichel led the entire postseason in scoring. Marcia So was second when the cons might for playoff MVP. Um, so it's a really hard group to defend because you've got this big, strong puck protector in Eichel. You've got this sniper in Marcia. So, and now you've got this guy who is capable of kind of, you know, doing all the complimentary grit work, but also has enough skill where he can still score uh, from distance on occasion. He did at one point in game three uh, of the Western conference final against Dallas and has enough kind of soft skill to help those guys out as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if he sticks with those guys, if he has another, you know, 60 point season. Ben Goats from the Las Vegas review journal, joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick show. Okay. So nothing official yet, but it sounds like we are 
you know, getting an Aiden Hill extension soon. It looks like a two-year deal at uh, $4.9 million per season. Uh, a much-deserved extension, as we well know. Uh, he was incredible in the playoffs. But can you explain why he's been such a good fit for the Golden Knights? Like, he, his regular season was good. I wouldn't say it was great, but it was it was pretty good. Um, his playoff was exceptional, one of the best that we've seen in a long time. Why does he fit well with this Vegas Golden Knights group? Yeah, I think he really developed as the year went on uh, under goaltending coach Sean Burke, who was one of the night, you know, unsung heroes of this championship in terms of he got five different starting goaltenders ready to play uh, during the regular season and got all five of them to win games uh, for the Golden Knights. So the thing that he worked uh, with Hill on that I think really showed up down the stretch before Hill got hurt uh, in the regular season was Aiden Hill's patience. I think early in the year, you know, Hill wasn't fitting quite as well with the Knights, but he learned to stay on his feet a little bit more, take more time to read plays and rely on his size at six foot four to fill up the net, which pairs really well with Bruce Cassidy's system where the shots are coming from predictable places from the outside. And if you've got a big body like Hills, you can stop a lot of those outside shots that the Knights are going to be allowing. And then in kind of the slot area where, you know, Hill might be vulnerable. You know, the Knights aren't giving up as many of those chances. They're not giving up as many lateral plays where, you know, if Hill moves side to side, maybe that's not his strength. The Knights are eliminating, you know, those shots from happening. So I think it was a really good partnership. They identified him as a guy that would fit in this system before the year. Once Robin Leonard got hurt, they did kind of a little bit of an analytical breakdown as to what shots the Knights are probably going to allow under Cassidy what goaltenders are really good at stopping those shots. And they thought Hill would be a smart pickup for them. Uh, and that really proved to be the case where, like I said, I think his patience improved throughout the year. He was really, really strong down the stretch in the regular season. And then once they got to the playoffs, he was obviously uh, incredible, led the postseason with a 932 save percentage uh, in terms of starting goaltenders. And so I think they really felt with the way he played down the stretch, that this is certainly not, a guy that they could let walk out the door and we'll see what he's able to do from here. Cause he's still got a lot of ways to grow. He has only played, you know, a career high 27 games in a single season. So now having him potentially step in and be the guy next year for the Knights is something that he's never done uh, in his uh, NHL career before. There's still a couple of bits of business here after the Hill deal gets finalized and, and it becomes, you know, a, a number on the cap. Uh, they need to do up a contract for Brett Howden, who was, you know, another player had a really good playoff and slotted very nicely in in that top six. Um, and they also have to redo a deal for uh, Pavel Derofeyev, who was really good for Henderson. And even when he came up, had a couple of nice spurts with the Golden Knights. Um, are those going to be short-term deals as maybe they'll have a better handle on the cap next year when a couple of guys come off? Or could you see, I mean, Howden obviously a little bit more likely on a, maybe a longer-term deal? I wouldn't be shocked if with Howden they try to go longer-term. This has kind of been the Knights' MO uh, so far when you've got these players you know, heading toward RFA status, that if they like a, a player, especially a player that hasn't quite popped yet but they think has a lot of potential, and I think Howden fits into that category as a guy who hasn't had – you know, a really impressive regular season yet, you know, but as you just pointed out there, definitely showed off his potential in the playoffs playing with Chandler Stevenson and Mark Stone where he had 10 points uh, throughout the night's run. 
I, I could see them trying to go a little bit longer term and lock them in at a favorable cap number before the cap uh, explodes. That's something the Knights did a lot last offseason where we saw Nicholas Waugh uh, was also an RFA get a six-year extension. Keegan Colasar and Nick Hag as RFAs got three-year deals. Uh, the Knights like to have cost certainty for the long term with some of their complementary pieces, especially knowing that they've got some of these star players like Eichel, Stone, Alex Petrangelo on these bigger cap hits. So I wouldn't be surprised if they try to stretch that one out, especially because I think they see a lot of potential in Howden, a guy who was a former first-round pick but didn't quite blossom with the New York Rangers, now seems to have really found a role that suits him as kind of the forechecking go-to-the-net guy on that Stevenson stone line. So I wouldn't be surprised if they try to get him in at a favorable number for years to come. Um, when we when we uh, talk about Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee and how they've built this team, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the turnover. And, and it wasn't really as much about complete turnover. It was, you know, the magnitude of the deals that they made. Some people get jealous because you can't go out and acquire Jack Eichel and Mark Stone. They did both. Uh, then you sign, you know, and in there you sign Alex Petrangelo as well. A lot of teams tried. They couldn't. Um, but when we look at this team, they're going to return almost everybody from this cup-winning team, and that doesn't happen all that often. Is it is it about time maybe we start applauding Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee for the work that they've done with this roster? Like, that, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but they did get a lot of criticism for how they built the roster and, oh, they're going to be in cap trouble. And, and there's still some moves that have to be made here, but to return as many guys as they're going to next year, I mean, that's pretty impressive. No, it's absolutely amazing. If they get you know Aiden Hill, that extension done, and they're able to get Brett Howden under contract as well, I mean, Riley Smith will pretty much be the only guy from their Stanley Cup uh, final lineups that will be out the door. They will have everyone else return under contract. And even then with Smith out the door, I mean, you mentioned Pavel Dorofeyev is a guy that played really well down the stretch for them as a young player, but potentially step into that role. So I do think they deserve a lot of credit for the way they've built this roster. I mean, you even look at some of their competitors, you've got, you know, a team like Edmonton today that's doing cap dumps for essentially nothing in, you know, Kyler Yamamoto and Clint Costin. I mean, even some of the night's closest competitors in the Western Conference are not able to maintain their teams as well as the Knights probably have heading in to next year. So I do think they've done really impressive work. And I do think slowly, and especially with this championship, the fan base has kind of turned to seeing more of George McPhee and uh, Kelly McCrimmon's, you know, side of things where I think a lot of the Riley Smith news uh, yesterday was met with a lot of sadness from fans because of how much Riley Smith has meant to this organization, how much of a part of a community, this community he was. But there was also the flip side where a lot of fans were like, but also I trust that these guys know what they're doing at this point. Every time they've done one of these kind of trades where they've moved on, you know, a guy like Ryan Reeves, Nate Schmidt, Marc-Andre Fleury, who these fans have absolutely loved, you know, the team has usually come out of it okay and still been very competitive moving forward. So obviously those two gentlemen deserve a lot of credit for the rosters that they've built, the roster that they're potentially going to return next year and I think fans have kind of learned to accept that we're not always probably going to love what they're doing but usually they do 
have, you know, the best interests of the team at heart when they're making these moves. And for the most part, they've worked out pretty well. I mean, working out pretty well with a Stanley Cup victory, I think that goes a long way and uh, and should uh, then they'll never have to buy a drink in Vegas again. Although if you spend enough money at the casinos, you don't have to do that anyway. So usually it's okay. Um, listen, Ben, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, try and enjoy a little bit more downtime before free agency, okay? Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. There he goes. Ben Goats from the Las Vegas Review Journal. And in there, he mentioned the Edmonton Oilers and giving up a couple players for basically nothing. Uh, joining us on the line to talk about that, Mark Spector from Sportsnet. Spec, how are you today? Good, Matty. How you doing, man? I'm good. So I, I was I was in a meeting, and then I come out, and I see Clem Costin and Kyler Yamamoto dealt to Detroit for uh, bus parts. Um what was your first thought when you saw the deal? Because I, I see Yamamoto go, and then I see Costin. Do you think that there was th- that the Oilers wanted to keep Costin, but the cost of moving Yamamoto was going to be Klim going to Detroit as well? Yeah, uh, the way I read these tea leaves, Matt, is that uh, the Oilers weren't going to be able to keep Costin. You're right when you say they'd like him on their team. But in a in a sort of fourth line role at fourth line money, and he has KHL options where he can make uh, I think a pretty decent dollar, basically almost tax free. I think you net more when you're a top player over there than you would as a third or fourth liner over here if you're a Russian guy. Uh, so I, I think the end of the story goes: the Oilers knew they weren't going to sign Costin, so. I would think that Steve Eisman Detroit likes the player and thinks maybe I'll give him third-line money because on my team he's a third-liner, and he's got to have had a discussion with the agent uh, and know whether or not Costin is going to play in the NHL next year. I think we're going to learn some stuff tomorrow, uh, whether Costin stays around, whether he gets signed by Detroit, whether Yamamoto gets bought out by Detroit. There's still some uh, questions to get answered here on this uh, transaction, Matt. For sure. Uh, and, and from the Edmonton perspective, so now Yamamoto's deal has been moved. That was something that I think a lot of people thought of, whether it was going to be trade or, or even a buyout. Um, that's one thing off the docket, but Ken Holland has just over $8 million in cap space. He needs to sign Evan Bouchard to an extension. Um, there's there's more coming here. Uh, is, that there, is that in the mold of we're going to try and move Warren Fogel or Cody Cece or both? Or is there another name that you think in there that they might try and move? No, those are the two, uh, you know, listen, this is a good team now, Matt, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at their roster and you look at a whole bunch of guys and you say, I don't want to trade any of these guys. I don't really have Yamamoto. I'm going to say to you was probably their worst contract. I mean, I know there's people that will say, forget it. It's Darnell Nurse, but Darnell Nurse is going to play for this team. He's not getting moved. So Yamamoto was the contract that they had to divest themselves of. And they did that. The next guys now in line, when you look at production versus paycheck, are Fogel and CC for sure. Uh, you know what? If you lose the size that Costin gave you in your bottom six, I'm not sure you want to lose Fogel anymore. Mm-hmm. Fogel had a very good playoff. Uh, he wasn't good his first year at Edmonton. He was pretty good his second. He's a big, hard-charging, fast third-line winger that can play either side. I suspect he's in Edmonton order this season, Matt. Uh, and CC, you know what? He's a right shot D man. They didn't have a very good year last year. I guess if you could upgrade on him, you would. Can you upgrade on him? Um, you know what? Let's <laughs> let's wait and see if you can upgrade on him. I'm not so sure you can. 
Well, and in all of this, the Evan Bouchard extension is the one that kind of complicated things because I think at the beginning of the year when you looked at Evan Bouchard, yes, you could see the upside, but, you know, he struggled defensively. And then, you know, the ticket starts to go up a little bit and then it explodes after the team acquires Matias Ekelman. Now you're looking at it going, okay, we've got $8 million in space. I think they have eight forwards under contract, and we await uh, what the cost is for for Ryan McLeod because he was, I believe Ken Holland said, that they did tender his his RFA status. So, I mean, (laughs) something's got to give here. So I guess the question I'm asking is, what are we looking at for a Bouchard extension here? Like, are they are they comfortable going eight times eight with Evan Bouchard? Or is it going to be, you know, a shorter bridge deal and then wait to see what happens? Because the way he played in the playoffs, that was a totally different player than what we had seen the first half of the year. Yeah, yeah. Evan Bouchard, I think, will... If I'm Ken Hall and I want to do a shorter bridge deal, I don't have eight million bucks here, Right to sign a long-term deal for Evan Bouchard. It's, it's just the, that money doesn't exist at this moment. Uh, so the team would love to do a shorter-term deal for a little less money just because today's cap space, let's kick that, that can down the road and figure it out later. Right now they're a cup contender that is capped out and trying to add that much cap space for Evan Bouchard would be very difficult. So the question becomes, you know, what does Jeff Jackson and uh, Evan Bouchard think about that? Uh, he is under team control. He's an RFA. So, you know what? I would say to you this, Matt, Jeff Jackson uh, has another guy on the orders who you might have heard of. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's not a bad player. Uh, so in, in the, what would I say, in the spirit of everyone here trying to win a Stanley Cup, in, in, within the term of the bridge deal that, that Bouchard would sign, I suspect that Evan Bouchard will be convinced and, and Jeff Jackson not to, to eat up too much cap space in the immediate future. I think that a bridge deal is what we're going to see. Uh, he's a good player, man. You know what? The Oilers, the Oilers banked on when they, when, when they traded Tyson Berry, they said, okay, Evan, the, we're handing you the football here. You're going to quarterback the power play. You're going to get a bunch of minutes. We have faith in you. We think you can do it while well, the kid delivered in spades. And now it comes back and they got to pay him for all that. So it's a good news, bad news story, right? How, how much of that was bringing in Jay Woodcroft? Because Woodcroft had him in the minors and really liked him there. And that was the one player that when Jay Woodcroft took over for Dave Tippett, everybody pointed to and said, that's the guy that's going to end up getting the biggest bump. And it didn't happen right away, but they stuck with it. And again, Bouchard didn't give many indications before that trade that we were going to see that type of I mean, I don't even want to say resurgence because he never surged. So the surge. Um, so how much of that is Jay Woodcroft and what he's been able to do? And and to an, and even to a different extent is Dave Manson. Yeah, and Dave Manson too, because he's the coach of the defenseman. And Matias Ekholm helped a little bit here, I think. And uh, the guys, the other guys on the power play, you know, that they helped him work into that role as the quarterback up there. And he just got better and better. So listen, I'm going to say this to you. With any team in the league, I'm a reporter here. When my team drafts a guy and he doesn't pan out, there's lots of blame to go around. I'm blaming the scouts. I'm blaming the GM who maybe didn't handle him right. I'm blaming the coach who didn't play him right. I'm blaming his teammates who didn't handle him right. This is the opposite. This guy is exactly what you expect out of a first-round pick defenseman. He took a little time. They've matured him slowly. Remember the bubble year? He came up, and he only played like 11 or 12 games. And a lot of people criticized the orders, and I did too. 
play this guy more. Don't waste a year of Evan Bouchard's development. This is crazy. Well, the player you have today has been developed properly. He's a very good young player. And all those names you just named, they all get credit, man, because when it goes bad, guys like you and me are the first ones to dump on people. So when it goes good, I think you got to say to Ken Holland and Jay Woodcroft and Dave Manson and Matthias Eckholm and everybody else you can name, good job on this player. The Oilers have developed a, a power play quarterback, first-pairing defenseman with an absolute bomb who's going to help them win for a long, long time. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of taking just taking people to the woodshed for when they make mistakes because nobody does that to me on the air. I swear, nobody ever complains. Oh no, me neither. Yeah, no, me neither. Yeah, I never no. hear that. Yeah, Spec, you never get any sort of uh, vitriol your way. Um, Mark Spector from Sports that joining Matt Marchese here. Okay, so when we look at the rest of the forward group, I mean, they do have some work to do. They have to add around the fringes, but the one benefit that the Oilers have that. I mean, maybe more so than other teams just because, you know, they have those two guys that are really good in, in Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. And that Nugent Hopkins guy was pretty good this year. Oh, and so is Zach Hyman. Like, they really just have to kind of build around the fringes, and they can do it, generally speaking, on the cheap. Is that the biggest benefit that the Oilers have this offseason is that they don't necessarily need to go big game hunting. I mean, they can try and try and, and swim in those waters if they want, but they really just have to build around the fringes, and it's not a big-time cost for them. And there are plenty of players available. Like I just had Chuck Fletcher on not too long ago, uh, last hour, and he talked about how many good players there are available, and that's why guys are going to go for a lot cheaper than maybe we expected. Well, that's why they're a good team, Matt, because they've, you know, their top six guys, all the guys they're paying money to, uh, certainly among their forwards, are all good players. They don't have bad contracts up top, right? Obviously, McDavid and Drysaddle are great players. Zach Hyman's a good contract and a good player. They signed Evander Kane for a nice number. Uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins is making, what's he making, five and a half? Gotcha yeah, hundred five, five and change, yeah. Right, five, gotcha 104 points last year. So, uh, you know, we can quibble around the edges on every player you want. That's fine. But you're not looking at any of those, those four. That's four of your top six right there uh i'm missing somebody but yamamoto they didn't like the contract they just moved it so my point is this the guys they're paying all the money to uh are producing they don't have guys they don't have i want to say i want picking the name out of ad here they don't have a john Tavares where you say oh my god this thing's killing us mm-hmm. so so yeah they gotta you know who beat them last year vegas beat them with a really strong depth group of forwards you know, so Edmonton needs to get better in depth guys. Well, depth guys at the deadline on July 2, 3, and 4, they come fairly cheap. If you shop wisely, you can get the right guys, especially when you're bringing them into a team with legitimate Stanley Cup aspirations. You're bringing them to Connor McDavid's team. You know, you can get a guy that might take the might earn 1.6 in Detroit, and maybe you can get him here for 1.1, right? So that's the game they're playing here in Edmonton. They got. I'll, I'll add this as a as a proviso. They could sure use one more defenseman here, but it doesn't have to happen on July first. If if Ken Holland can save close to a million bucks of cap space uh, at the trade deadline, that's about four and a half. So I think they'll probably go into the season saying we don't love our defense. We could use one more guy. But I think that's an itch he's going to scratch on whatever free agent day is March first. Yeah, it'll be um, it'll be something that they they can get through the season if they don't like yeah. one defenseman. I mean, it also helps that I that, agree. 
It also helps that that Dreisaitl guy's making eight and a half. Uh, yeah, that's sure a does. steal. Um, sure does. Okay, so when we look at this roster, obviously free agency is going to play a factor in all of this, but how many of the younger players uh, will we see a little bit more of next year? Like, I'm assuming there's a spot somewhere for Dylan Holloway on this team yeah. uh, on a regular basis. Uh, but what about guys like uh, Xavier Borgo or Carter Savoy? I assume that they are not super close and we still have to wait for them. But is there any other guys that you look at and say, I could see them, especially up front that they could make uh, an impact and, and be, you know, guys that fill out the bottom six. Yeah. The guy that's going to get a chance. They're a little light on right wing here in Edmonton. Uh, at this point, they basically got Zach Hyman and Derek Ryman, uh, uh, Ryan. I would give you a first line right winger and a fourth line right winger. Uh, they're a little right, a little light on right wing, a guy named Raphael Lavoie, uh, an Oilers draft pick. He's been in the minors for a few years. He, he popped, the second half of the season last year, he's a big kid out of Quebec. Uh, I think he scored 24 goals in the second half or something. Uh, they would love, they would love for this guy to show that he's ready, right? You know, everybody knows this. You got a good team. You need some entry level guys to produce to be good for you. So this is an, there's two guys here, Matt. There's Lavoie and there's Philip Broberg on the fence. These two guys are going to get every chance to have good years and become NHL players this year. And if heading into the deadline, they're not, well, now you got to get to work at the deadline and see what you can figure out. And both of those guys taken in the, uh, the 2019 draft. And the, the thing with the thing with um, Lavoie is, is he's a big guy. He's six, four and he's, yep. I mean, he, he fits that mold. Maybe he's not going to give you the same kind of physicality as like a Clem Costin, but certainly has some, some offensive upside there. Uh, Spec. Thank you so much for taking some time for me today. Um, enjoy the next couple of days because I know that July 1st is busy for everyone. And it's not because we're drinking beers outside. It's because there's that free agency thing going on. So uh, enjoy it and we'll chat soon. All right. Thanks for the call, Matt. There he goes. Mark Spector from Sportsnet. And and I mean that Oilers team. Yes, it's it goes without saying that things are easier when you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl who are making you know, 21 million between the two of them. And those guys are putting up insane video game, like numbers that they do. Yeah, sure. It does make it easier to round out the roster, but I do feel that the Oilers are going to make another trade or two, because I, I wonder about them trying to still make a big splash, even if it's on defense, because that's where, listen, that's where their biggest need is. We could talk about the bottom six. That's generally speaking, a much easier task to do in filling out that part of your lineup, but in adding an impact defenseman to go along with, with nurse and with Bouchard and, you know, maybe the emergence of Philip Broberg. I do wonder if they're going to try and swim in those waters. Ken Holland is working the fold. This is Ken Holland's last year. He has made that abundantly clear. So do I think that Ken Holland is going to go out and just kind of, be okay with the status quo with this team. I wouldn't count on that. I really would not count on that. Um, we're going to hit a break here. When we come back, some Anaheim ducks talk, how surprised was everyone when the name that was announced by the Anaheim ducks was not Adam Fantilli. I will put my hand up and say that I was very, very surprised. Not that Carlson's not a good player. It's just, that's what we've been told but maybe we should not listen to what we've been told 
about Pat Verbeek. Eric Stevens from The Athletic will join me when we come back. You're listening to The Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, watching on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Final segment of the Jeff Merrick Show for Thursday, June the 29th. So last night was fun. We knew number one forever. Basically, since uh, Connor Bedard was like 12 years old, we're pretty certain that it was going to be Connor Bedard. Number two, we thought we knew. I mean, I thought I knew. Lots of people. Look at mock drafts. Lots of people thought they knew. And then Pat Verbeek showed up. The veil of secrecy that is the Anaheim Ducks now. Nothing gets out of there. It's like Detroit. It's like the Islanders. I mean, I'd, I would appreciate a little bit more insight into what goes on behind closed doors. Maybe our next guest knows. Eric Stevens from The Athletic covers the Anaheim Ducks as well as the LA Kings. And, and, and Eric, I'm watching it last night, and I'm, I'm convinced that Adam Fantilli is going number two. I'm saying, how could you pass on Adam Fantilli? And then I said, well, Pat okay. Verbeek is there. And then it's Leo Carlson. Um, how surprised were you at the pick? And, like, I mean... Why, 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 why did they choose Leo Carlson? And not that he's a bad player, but why did they choose Leo Carlson over Adam Fantilli? Well, you know what? Not to go all cross sport with you, but uh, Pat Bravik showed last night that uh, he's got uh, maybe not a Clayton Kershaw curveball, <laughs> but he's got a little bit of a curveball in his, in his arsenal there. And uh, he threw one last night, but you know, he's kind of his, as you alluded to it, Pat, not that, he, not that he's a maverick or whatsoever, but he's a bit of his own man. And I don't think he's, you know, he kind of shows that he, he's, he's not afraid to buck convention, so to speak. Um, and so, yeah, with, you know, it, it, it certainly was coming down to um, Carlson versus Fantilli. I don't think it's a thing of where, where had they went that route that they would be unhappy. Um, I think everyone, and including them, think that Adam Fantilli is going to be a good player in this league, Perhaps, you know, potentially great. But I think the vibe that I got, whether in talking with him or talking to people around him uh, or whatsoever here, is, is, is that maybe there's a feeling that, Fant- that Adam has maybe not necessarily maxed out, but maybe he's closer to maxing out right now as opposed to leo who they think has a lot more growth in his game and he's already got he's already got the skill and the playmaking and what they say is what they also feel is the creativity uh the the ability to make his teammates better um the the fact that uh his he's showing a more of a willingness even to shoot the puck and have that as a weapon in addition to setting up teammates, setting up line mates and whatsoever. What the you... names that I've, yeah. Oh, no, I'm no, sorry. continue. Sorry. No, no, continue. Sorry. No, just here, here's some of the names that have served, that have been thrown around with him. Andre Kopitar, Miko Rantanen, a name from the past that you're familiar of, a little bit of Matt Sundin in there. 
That's what they're thinking in terms of what his ceiling could be. They see a potential, not, not, not just the number one center, but potentially a franchise center. Yeah, those are, those are pretty good. Uh, uh, they look all like Hall of Famers to me, um, especially two of the three for sure. Uh, but Rantanen, I mean, the way he's going, he's, he's pretty much on that pace. Um, what were your first impressions of both the player and, and the person? Because you got to see him, you got to you know hear from him last night. Was there, you know, like, what are your main takeaways from, from, from you know, speaking with or, or hearing Leo Carlson and then seeing the player himself? Wonderful kid, very well-spoken, and when I say that as well, I think it's significant because, and it's been written about it, um, he has a stutter, but it's something that he has com- completely embraced. He's, he doesn't shirk away from interviews. He doesn't shirk away from questions. In fact, he looks you right in the eye. He's an eager participant in interviews, and he powers through his stutter. And I think that's something that, I mean, you know, it, it's not why they picked them, obviously, but I think it just adds to one of the reasons why, you know, that, that speaks to his character. They, they feel like he is a high character individual, um, you know, and, and, and someone that while he may be a little bit on the, say, the quieter not, side, you know, he's not this huge personality, so to speak, or whatsoever, but that they feel like there is a, a serious competitor underneath that. Um, they, no, they, they're very impressed uh, with them. And I was myself. Um, when you look at, see, now, now becomes a little bit of an interesting conundrum in Anaheim because there is a specific player um, that is, uh, you know, listed as a center. He's a restricted free agent. But when you look at, the strength up the middle now with McTavish and now with Carlson. Um, how does that leave negotiations for Trevor Zegris? Because we know centermen, generally speaking, get more money, uh, but it looks like Trevor Zegris is going to be a winger on this team. How do you think that the organization views, you know, bringing in Carlson, he's a center, and now potentially paying Zegris as a winger? <laughs> well, look, I... Trevor's going to get paid. Okay. There, there, make no mistake. Um, and I, and I think that, um, I'm sure that they've had plenty of conversations in terms of what direction to go in terms of, in terms of how much term do you want to go the full max right now, the full eight, uh, you know, with him, you know, or, or would, would, you know, would the two sides be more, you know, you know, you would talk about more, you know, in, in terms of like a, a, a bridge or whatsoever, especially with the specter of the cap, you know, rising greatly over the next, uh, say, two, not next, this season, obviously, but the next two or three seasons whatsoever. I, I don't know if it's going to make, I don't know if it's going to make a real big difference or whatsoever, whether it's, you know, get, being paid as a center or being paid as a wing whatsoever. I, I think it's going to be, they're going to look at the Jack Hughes contract. They're going to look at the Cole Caulfield uh, contract, um, things of that nature in terms of potential comparables. Um, but with an eye on again, the fact that the cap, uh, you know, is rising or so. So that's going to be really interesting, uh, interesting to see what number he comes in at and how many years, if they go the full eight or whatsoever, but no, he's, 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 I, 
there's, there's not going to be a question of, of signing him or whatsoever. I think it's going to be a more question of like where he's going to be in that lineup and whether he's going to be on left wing or, you know, is there going to be some movement? And another thing to that too, is that I don't think there's really an expectation for Leo Carlson to say play next year. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he plays another year in Sweden, they're leaving it wide open right now, but you know, it's something, the position thing may not necessarily be something that they deal with right now. Um, speaking of, of Zegris and this contract, and, and I'm going to turn the focus to, to Pat Verbeek here because this is, this potentially could be a big one for him in that this is the first real big contract that he's going to sign with one of his young stars. I mean, I don't necessarily want to go as far as saying this is a precedent setter, but it's pretty close in terms of how future negotiations are going to go with other players. Now, the cap will go up, and and that's always part of the conversation, but when I look at this roster, I'm not certain that, you know, when when we look at, I, I said the Jack Hughes contract in New Jersey was probably the forward cap, and then Timo Meyer ends up, you know, beating that by $800,000 a season. I'm not certain that Trevor Zegers is the forward cap, but he might end up being the forward cap on this team. Do you see this as a really big deal for Pat Verbeek for future negotiations with other players? You know what? That's a great point. And let's also not ignore the fact that Troy Terry is coming up on, uh, on on, on a big deal. And so, I think this is really going to be not, not only whether, you know, uh, how these contracts are, you know, you know, factored in and compared league wide and whatnot whatsoever, but I think just resetting their own salary structure and how Zegris and how Terry both will factor into that, who will maybe make more. Um, and then, you know, how things kind of slot as it goes down. Yeah, they've, they've got a, a, a ton of cap space. They've got the most cap space out there, $39 million. But we know that, obviously, uh, the deals for Zegers and Terry are going to eat a big chunk of that. Um, but, yeah, I, I, that's a big part in this in terms of being able to sort of align and reset the, the whole internal team structure in, in, in how the, uh, you know, and how the salaries break down. Uh, another guy that plays into what the future looks like in Anaheim is goaltender John Gibson. And his name has been out there for what feels like forever. Um, doesn't necessarily fit their window of winning. Uh, he's, he's, I mean, he's older, but he's certainly not old. Um, what kind of interest do you think there is in John Gibson around the league, especially considering that the goalie market feels like it's a little bit flooded right now? And do you anticipate that John Gibson is a member of the Ducks by the time the season starts? I, I still think that it's very much uh, up in the air. And why I say that is, is that he still has four years left on his contract at 6.4. And so, yes, there's going to be goalie movement. Um, certainly, and, and maybe that kind of plays into it as well. The fact that there, you know, is, I don't know if it's a glut is the right word, but there's, there's going to be a number of goalies that are out there. And so we, we all, you know, we know that, um, supply often outweighs demand. Uh, you know, there, it'd be another thing if say, for instance, you know, that, that that the market was going to be really dry and that, you know, uh, you know, the teams that were really looking for something that only had, would only have maybe, say, really two, three realistic options. Well, I think there's going to be more than that. And so I think that's where the contract kind of, you know, plays into itself. 
you know, could he move? Yeah, he could move. Uh, you know, and I think teams should be really interested because I, I, the numbers haven't been good. Let's, I'm not, I'm not going to ignore the, the numbers, but he's also played in a rough situation here. Uh, I mean, they they were abysmal defensively. He didn't have really had any help, uh, much help at all. And so the, you, you've got to believe that there are teams that are thinking that he could still maybe upgrade them because, you know, because they know that he, there's a better team and that they'd get a rejuvenated John Gibson in mind. Um, but if he doesn't move, they can look at it as you got a new coach, you install a new system, maybe a tighter system whatsoever that's more beneficial to goalie, um, and he can maybe rebuild his value. Uh, uh, we just got a couple minutes left here. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Maxime Comtois because it, it, Elliot Friedman reported that he's not going to be tendered a, a contract as a restricted free agent, so it opens up the door for him to become an unrestricted free agent. I assume that there's going to be a lot of interest for him on a short-term deal worth, you know, a little bit of money, kind of a prove-it deal. But, you know, he was the leading scorer for the Ducks a, a few years ago, and then everything kind of just tailed off. What exactly went wrong with him in Anaheim? And do you think that he will really benefit from a change of scenery? Yeah, you know what? I, I think there's still something there. I, I really do believe it. I mean, there's, there's talent there. He's got size. He can play around. Uh, you know, he can do some stuff around the net. Um, you know, I think where things sort of diverge uh, there and, and where he kind of fell out of their plans, at least fell out of favor with um, former coach Dallas Eakins, was the play away from uh, the net or, you know, the play, you know, the d- defensive play, uh, maybe the inconsistency from night to night. I think that's where things sort of uh, fell apart uh, there and he really fell out of the mix. Um, so I, I wasn't terribly surprised at all. I, in fact, I expected. I mean, he's got a 2.55 qualifying actor offer. I didn't think that the Ducks were going to, you know, do that at all. So, yeah, I, I do think that I, I think he really does need a change of scenery because there's, there's talent there. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and maybe it's a wake-up call uh, in, in a sense as well. You know, especially, you know, when you're a young player and, you know, things kind of go well initially and then, and then it kind of goes sideways. Um, you know, it can sort of open and open the eyes for for a younger player, you know, young player like himself. So, um, I think there will be there will be a market in here. I think I, I think another team should bet on him. Put it that way. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think there's going to be a lot of teams because everybody who's tied up against the cap wants to add around the fringes and feel like you could do a lot worse with upside than a guy like uh, Max Comtois. Uh, listen, Eric, thank you so much for taking some time for me today. Really appreciate it. And uh, enjoy the day, enjoy the rest of today and the days leading up to free agency. Should be a lot of fun. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Always enjoy being on. There he goes. Eric Stevens from The Athletic covers the Anaheim Ducks. And like I said, a, I don't want to call it a big surprise because Leo Carlson is a very good player in his own right. Look, Eric talked about the comparables that people are, are already putting out there. Andre Kopitar, uh, Miko Rantanen, Matt Sundin. I mean, <laughs> pretty good players. So if that's, if that's what you're getting, I'm never going to fault a team for their process. You believe in what you believe in. You got to go out and get your guy. I'd be curious to see when they decided on Leo Carlson over Adam Fantilli. That would be fascinating. But the Ducks are a really interesting team. You, you know, you talked about we talked about the the coming extension for Trevor Zegris. Uh, there's another one for Troy Terry. Both of them restricted free agents. Um, you've got 
an interesting decision in John Gibson. And if he's going to get moved and how he fits into the goalie market, they've got a brand new coach and Greg Cronin in there, and he's going to work with the young players. Does Mason McTavish take another step forward? Lots of things going on with the Anandups. There's lots of things going on, period. And hopefully, we're keeping our fingers crossed, that there's more tomorrow when we wrap up the week. Uh, thank you to everyone that joined the show today. Shayna Goldman, uh, Chuck Fletcher, Ben Goats, Mark Spector, and the aforementioned Eric Stevens. Thank you to everyone behind the glass. Lance Kennedy, David Sis, Jen Rolnick. For Matt Marchese, in for Jeff Merrick. You've been listening to the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, and you've been watching on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Have a great rest of the day, and we'll chat with you tomorrow.